Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to the Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more, find past episodes and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it. Deep down, you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career. So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today, I've got a phenomenal guest with me, JT Grauke. JT is a freelance brand and product designer. He's worked with a ton of awesome clients. And if you are looking to up your brand game or you are looking to polish up your product design, on your current website or app, or if you have an idea and you want someone to take charge of that and bring it to fruition, to life, then you definitely want to contact and hit up JT Grocky. And it's very simple. All you have to do is go to J for Jack, T for Tom, JT Grocky, that's G-R-A-U-K-E.com and just contact him. And I'm going to include a link to his website in the show notes, but definitely hit him up if you have any branding needs. So without further ado, JT my friend, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, J. Neil. I like that intro. That was awesome. You nailed it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, man. Um, I try, man. Uh, it, it is one of those things where a lot of people have podcast ads. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to have podcast ads. My ads are going to be my guest. <laughs> Thanks, so, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's no. That's been my thing. I'm humbled. I appreciate it. I, uh, you know, I'm uh, sure it's always the case. People come on and they're like, well, I don't know about that, but I'll take it. <laughs> so you've got a background in acting. Yeah, I do. I have a BFA in musical theater. Uh, so I, you know, only did it in college and I did uh, repertoire theater over summers and, you know, just shows here and there. But um, yeah, that's technically my formal training as, as an actor. So this is a very stupid question. Let's say your wife told you not to eat that really delicious chocolate and save it for her. Okay. Okay. And you ate it and she's like, JT, did you eat it? Do you think you can just like pull out your acting on the spot and be like, <laughs> No, babe, I did not eat it at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm the worst liar. <laughs> Couldn't do that. Because I was life. like, how do actors live their personal life behind the scenes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're all you know terrible actors in real life. Wow, that is deep. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> only only when the camera's rolling. Only when it's all pretend. So at least for oh me. Oh my god. And then. From that point where you were in acting and stuff, what got you into the design realm? So, um, you know, I, I actually made a website for myself that was kind of like my own little portfolio because I had shots from shows. And um, I remember downloading like an HTML uh, template, basically. And, uh, and it was kind of my first, you know, my first intro into looking at code and the ability to like change something in code and then see it update 
uh, for real um, on on a site. And that was just such a magical experience for me. And I think a lot of people describe that feeling of being able to change something just in code and then seeing what it did. And so I just remember playing with that, getting obsessed with it. And then that kind of took me down this whole realm into getting into WordPress, getting into just hacking together websites and um, so I really approached design more from this kind of, you know, front end development world. Uh, and just, you know, especially that was something that was easier to find classes on. It was easier to, mm-hmm. to do things, um, where you could go through tutorials. I mean, uh, I don't remember the name of that. Was it code school where you could go and it would kind of walk you through different, different things. I mean, I was obsessed with, with stuff like that. Oh yeah. Um, and I'd always done Adobe. Adobe products. I made uh, videos like in high school. I did a few wedding videos for friends, and I always just loved to put together footage. So I was always used to. I was used to the Adobe suite. I was used to just kind of the interface and working mm-hmm. in like a design software. Um, so I felt like I, you know, I had both of those uh, sides to me, both the creative and the design side, and sort of an eye for film and photo and design in general and then this kind of technical side with code and making websites um and after after college it just sort of dawned on me it's like oh this is a this is like a thing people do this <laughs> this is a job i can so have <laughs> you're like in acting school and yeah. you're doing this on the side yeah i was doing it on the side and that was actually <laughs> how i would make a little bit extra money was i started to like make websites for like 500 bucks and it was just like oh, oh wow. this is amazing you know it was like you know it was so fun for me it was just like a little hobby and you self-taught yourself, like all the coding and design and everything. Yeah, for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. After college, I got a job in sales, and I spent a few years in sales doing like outbound, trying to sell like data mm-hmm. software. Um, and I was continuing to do the freelance stuff on the side. It was not fun. <laughs> it was not fun. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was I'm an actor. I probably should be good at sales. And um, yeah, yeah, it didn't didn't go very well. Um, but. I ended up taking a, a course called uh, Thinkful, or it was through Thinkful.com. It was like back when mm-hmm. they first started. Um, and it was like their front-end web development thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it was like three months. Uh, it was supposed to take three months. I did it in like two because I was just obsessed with it. Wow. Um, but it's cool. You have a mentor. So I would meet uh, once a week uh, with this guy that I think worked at like ASOS. He was from the UK and he just was like a full-time developer. Okay. But then he mentored me on the side. What year was um, that? Do you remember? That would have been 2013 ish, I okay. think. 2013, 2014, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe sooner than that. And then you finished the course. And at that point, what made you decide that, okay, I think maybe coding and design is what I want to pursue instead of just working in sales? So I actually did a test that's called. Uh, Berkman, which is like a personality test and like a career. Oh. It's like a career focused personality test. And it was actually at the job mm-hmm. that I was working where I was working in sales. And they started okay. to do that kind of as part of their HR thing. And they were like, mm-hmm. wow, you you really are bad at sales. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was, if you could have looked at your numbers, I was basically on like a performance plan where it was like, you either need to like get in shape or we're going to have to let you go. Oh my God. Um, but anyway, I took that test and it was like, you know, and you have you ever considered like anything in sort of visual arts is what I think it was called. That was the category. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I do that like all the time. And is that a thing? Can I do that? And uh, and then I ended up basically making like a transition into their engineering department and uh, was a UI designer. So that was kind of the that was the transition that I was able to make. And then, you know, from that point, it just, you know, my whole world opened up and I got to 
kind of experienced that whole realm working in-house basically as a product designer. Uh, and the, the guy who was there before me actually had left. So oh wow, it ended up that within a very short period of time, it was basically just me doing most of the design work for all of the, all of the digital product work. And um, yeah, it was a trial by fire. I mean, it was, you know, totally into the deep end. And how did you handle the pressure? Because I mean, you're the only one doing this is your first official gig as a product designer. Um, there's nobody else you can just go to for questions and answers. So how did you like go through that trial period? Um, I mean, it was challenging, but at the same time, it, that's, you know, that's how I like to to, to work. I, I like that kind of higher pressure environment where um, mm -hmm. it's a lot higher stakes. You know, thankfully, it wasn't like they were going through a massive, you know, redesign of everything. Um, so I was able to do some initial, uh, you know, initial ideas and what they had was working well. So, you know, I was basically able to kind of sit and make some improvements, but then also, you know, try these like grand ideas where then I got to kind of propose like, what if we thought about it this way? And, um, yeah. you know, then that kind of got me into the whole realm of product management and, you know, reading a lot of stuff about that um, and working closely with a product manager. So for a good chunk of time, probably about four years, there were just a few of us. It was basically me a handful of product managers, like two or three other people who had like different focuses. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, a, you know, it's pretty small, like eight to 10 uh, person size engineering team. Um, so I would do a lot of the front end code. Uh, and then I would obviously sit with the product manager and we would talk to customers and then I would get to do the design. And, you know, at the mm -hmm. time, I think I was even using Illustrator or something like that. Uh, this was before I discovered Sketch and, um, yeah. you know, before I actually kind of figured out more or less what I was doing. Wow. And at this point, did you see yourself like venturing out to do your own thing at some point? Or you were like, you know what, I'm just going to stick to this corporate track, work for agencies and just build that up and maybe join some other big company at some point? Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely was not thinking about, you know, doing things on my own at that point. Um, you know, I think for a while, I thought that I would just kind of do the in-house designer role. I wasn't mm -hmm. really even into into branding at all. I mean, I I dabbled in a little bit and made a few logos here and there, but it was just kind of like, you know, I didn't yeah. really have the, you know, frame of reference for how to go about that work. So, I just thought I would, you know, maybe stay in-house there or potentially get another job doing, you know, product design and try to kind of, you know, move up the move up the ladder and kind of jump around from company to company. Mm -hmm. That never ended up happening. Because that was that you know I basically had that job for six ish years, uh, and then I transitioned Whoa. to Focus Focus Lab. Um, so and that was kind of crazy because they we what what happened was is our company basically mm -hmm. ha uh, hired Focus Lab for a handful of times over the course of about three years. Mm -hmm. So I got to know that whole team uh, basically as a client first, and uh, oh, wow. was kind of the point person on like a small branding project and a little bit of like a UI design. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my first introduction to them. And I was like, man, that was super cool. Like that team is great. You know, like I loved the process. Wow. I loved the the work that they did, obviously. And I was just kind of like a kid in a candy store. Like, wow, like maybe I should, uh, you know, try to, I would love to work for them someday. And I actually told their bill, who's the, uh, who's a C, I don't know, CEO, CCO. I mean, it was relatively flat. I mean, at the time it was like, he was just one mm -hmm. of the co-founders. So I, uh, you know, I told him we had like a Skype call and I was like, I'd love to work for you one day. 
Um, oh, wow. he, he told me later, he was like, yeah, that really meant a lot because, you know, a lot of times people will say like, I want to work for you now. And I was willing to tell him like, I'd love to work for you someday. I know I'm not ready. Yeah. So, you know, over the course of about three years, I just kind of kept in touch and, you know, just sort of opened up my whole world of just other designers and people to follow and dribble. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just started to venture out and try to connect with other people and just, you know, opened up my eyes. I mean, I was basically kind of focused more on my hometown and uh, yeah. I realized there's this whole other world of people to meet and, you know, people to learn from online. Now, where you just said that, that's an amazing uh, point I want to explore more because, I mean, some people may be considered taboo or like don't talk about it. So you're working at a company in-house and then your company is consulting with an agency. And I think a lot of times designers do want to jump ships to the agency because it's moving at a fast pace. There's more innovation, variety of clients you work with. So did you have to like tread some kind of fine line? Because I mean, your bosses are the company you're working for. I mean, you don't want to tell them like, oh, I'm just going to jump ship and join Focus Labs at the same time. You also want to, I guess, um, impress the people at Focus Labs so that transition can happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think what I had going for me is just... And I think you just have to take it each, um, you know, each case is unique. Um, for me, you know, I wasn't necessarily overt about telling my current company like, well, I'd really love to work for Focus Lab. I think yeah. it was more of, um, you know, it, it is one of those things I had to get comfortable with. I mean, there were seasons where I would go and I would interview at other places because yeah. I realized like I hadn't really done that. And yeah. I should I should do that. Like, and, and it is a good, pra- a, a good practice. And what did you learn from that? Like when you went out and just interviewed? Yeah, I mean, uh, so much of it was just, okay, well, now I have to evaluate how I'm presenting myself online and my portfolio. What's that conversation like when I'm, you know, meeting somebody for the first time? And how do I think through design problems? And not just in the work itself, but how do I explain how I think about design problems? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a really great you know, an interesting challenge. And I think it was something that the company culture there was, it was encouraged, not in like a, you know, hey, you should go get another job. But it was the sort of thing where it wasn't taboo there. It wasn't like it was a problem. Um, Again, a lot of what they did was helping, you know, data around colleges and data around different types of employers. So it was kind of within the whole Mm -hmm. realm of like HR and, um, you know, job placement, things like that, where it was Mm -hmm. just sort of like, stuff we talked about and it's like, Hey, this is the best practice. Like you should brush up on your, on your skills. And, um, it's common that people get to a certain point where like, it would be better for them to leave and to quit and go get another job Yeah, because that's <laughs> going to make everyone else more productive. You know, it's yeah. funny. It's like, you probably noticed that if there's certain people who've been like a tenure, they get to a certain point where they're just like kind of old and crusty and just like, yeah, you know, they, dra- they drag everybody else down. That is true. Yeah. They become like super possessive about and territorial. I think is the word. Yeah. Um, and some of the companies I worked at, the slang that was used to describe them was called lifer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, you know, so I, I definitely wasn't at that point, you know, at the beginning of those three years, but by the end of it, you know, I just, it, it was totally right. And, uh, when I was able to make the transition over to, to focus lab, there were just no hard feelings. I mean, everyone was like, that totally wow. makes sense. You know, way to go. This is going to be great. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, it was a really great you know, situation, but you definitely have to like, you kind of just have to feel out, you know, if your boss is going to be weird about it. But then when you made the jump to focus lab, did you also have to work with that same client, which was your former employer? No, (laughs) no. I mean, 
I, I want to, I'm trying to think if we, if it ever came up. I mean, there were definitely times where there were probably projects where it could have been, but yeah, I, I never, uh, it was never really like that. <laughs> that would have been funny though. They, it probably would have been great. They, they probably would have loved it. I think it would have been fun. Yeah. But I think as a creator, you'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> I want some other variety of a portfolio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you made the transition to Focus Lab and you're enjoying it there. Um, walk me through the journey where you, you're slowly starting to get that itch more of trying to explore what it's like to be your own freelance uh, brand and product design consultant. Yeah. So, I mean, Focus Lab was, was awesome. Uh, I spent like three and a half years there and a super great team. Got to work on a ton of great projects and work with great clients. Um, so, you know, the amount of just learning and experience that I was able to get in a relatively short period of time was phenomenal. And uh, so it, it really was honestly mostly because of COVID uh, and the some of the changes and, and things that had happened just sort of in the world at large. And, uh, you know, they had kind of made the call to cut some of, you know, salaries across the board just as a way to sort mm -hmm. of hedge against any sort of furloughs or layoffs. You know, yeah, it was yeah. a great, it was a great move. Like everyone was on board, but it also made me feel more confident and like, I should probably try to find some freelance to, um, you know, just for me and for my family and stuff like that. It was, uh, the right time to do that. And so what happened was, and what I was thinking about in terms of how to explain it, I like to think of it like this. When you have a full-time job, you're basically saying you only have one client. Correct. And obviously, if you're, you know, when I was at Focus Lab, you'd have multiple projects at once or, you know, you have multiple clients. It's not the clients that you're actually serving with your services. It's, you know, thinking more in terms of income streams. And so, mm -hmm. um, you knew a little bit of freelance on the side. Now you've got two clients and it just sort of dawned on me. It's like, if I can think about this in a little bit more of an entrepreneurial way and I mm -hmm. can think about, you know, basically for me, it was almost like removing the middleman, you know, focus up is basically, they've got the brand, they've got the outreach, they've yeah. got sales, they're bringing clients in. And then I'm basically just, you know, focus lab is my one client yeah. and then I do all the work. And so it was really just That's kind your of, only income stream. Yeah. That was my only income stream. And I, you know, I had some stuff on the side and my wife and I have done some stuff with WordPress themes and, you know, there's been those things that we've always been like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did that more full time? But basically, you know, once I actively started to pursue some freelance clients, it just dawned on me that, you know, I could set things up in such a way that would really give me the freedom to, you know, serve those clients on my own and, and start to build my own brand and, and build, you know, toward the next 10 years. So how does one even go about doing it? Uh, did you like save up? Like, let's just save up for this many months and then I make the jump. Um, what were the the metrics that convinced you like, okay, now is the time to jump? Was it like some clients you had already lined up at that point? Yeah. So it was a combination of a few things. I mean, the savings was definitely one thing. My wife and I have some goals around like saving for our home and for future investments. And so mm -hmm. we'd been kind of chipping away at some of that goal. But we hadn't put any money toward our, our house or this other investment. We basically just had it there. And so that was kind of like this realization of, oh, I guess if we just leave that there for now, it can sort of be this, this nest egg. Um, so we had, you know, kind of an emergency fund and some other, uh, money that we're just going to leave alone, you know, as we make this transition. Cause I still consider myself basically making the, the transition. Mm -hmm. But then also, um, 
you know, something that we can get into and, and talk about. It was just the way that I've tried to set things up is more of a, you know, pay for input rather than pay for output and, and more of like a time-based thing. So more of a time-based thing than a value-based thing. So right now, as I'm building my business, I'm trying to book my time at a higher hourly rate so that I can have more predictable income based on just showing up. So yeah. I can give you this many hours per month and it's going to be this much per month. And so now I've got, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is set up long-term, more like monthly retainer type relationships with clients as I'm starting out. Just want to like interject and maybe ask you a question because there's all these videos about value-based pricing, make it based on the entire project. And there's like so much stuff about it. So I'm curious to learn why as you're starting off the business, you're going more on like the time-based aspect, you're charging a higher hourly rate. So why are you going um, for that approach instead of just making it all about value-based pricing? So I like to think of it like a financial portfolio and you just have okay. to diversify the types of projects that you have. Mm-hmm. If I were to, and, and I mean, I'm, you know, I could be totally wrong, <laughs> but this is just how I think about it right now. If I were to make all of my projects value-based and do them yeah. uh, all structured that way, that's more based on milestones or more, ba- more based on, you know, the output. Completion going, of the project. Com- yeah. Completion of the project. There's so many unknowns and there's so many variables that can, you know, throw things off that yeah. you put yourself in potentially some unnecessary risk. At least for yeah. me, it felt unnecessary risk versus having like, you know, right now I'm basically at like two thirds of my project load is more of this time based. Like I can give you this many hours per month and we're going to do like these types of tasks at this dollar hourly rate. Mm-hmm. So I have it set up to just, and I, I basically structure it like within my contracts as like a pay for access. So yeah. you get access to this time, you pay for this time. It may be more, it may be less, but we're generally going to agree that like my involvement is going to allow me to do these tasks for this amount per month. And it's basically at the beginning of the month, I send them an invoice and they have to pay it by the end of the month. So what if we take an example, let's say I want to do some branding work with you. I want to do some branding work for my podcast design MBA, right? So I'm the client and I come to you like, Hey JT, uh, I want to do some branding work. You say, all right. And you quote me your hourly rate. And I said, okay. And then we agree that you say some kind of like arrangement where I get, let's say 10 hours a week. Now, what if I don't use those 10 hours? Is it like those remaining two hours carry forward the next week or I'm still paying you for the 10 hours, regardless of how much I use them? No. The hours are not like tracked and sort of kept and roll over and, and all that sort of stuff. And I should mm-hmm. qualify what I normally do. And I think this is a, a good, you know, obviously a relevant point. If you were to come to me and say, Hey, I want branding help. I would probably try to break it into different sections such that we could start with mm-hmm. a value based sort of lump sum upfront for that, for that type of thing. If you just came to me and said, Hey, I have this app that I want to build and I think I need mm-hmm. your help to design it, then I would say, okay, I'll give you 40 hours a month and it'll be this much per month. And let's, let's go and we'll start next month. And, uh, um, you know, I've got a slot open or, or something like that. If it was just like, Hey, I want to do a brand. I probably would, you know, there would be a lot more discovery and asking questions about, you know, what kinds of things you're needing for the brand. So I would try to do a lot of that, that stuff up front. Cause that is a little bit more predictable in terms of my process in terms of how long I think it's going to take. 
and I can structure that in like a contract. But then there's this whole implementation period. There's this whole other side of things. And that was one of mm-hmm. the differences I felt um, from Focus Lab where I wanted to be able to hang in there with people as they implemented brands and as they move mm-hmm. from here's the big idea to here's like a Google slide template and here's a one pager and here's your site and here's some other, you know, sort of it's the experience. How do we actually put this into play? And that's where then I would try to transition them into, okay, let's let's basically turn the valve on this much and it's going to be this much per month. You know, it's a lot cheaper to keep a client than to go find a new one. Oh, I see. So you're you're providing the value in the discussions with me that, hey, you want to consult with me even when you're implementing and not just be like, all yeah. right, the design's done. Now I'll figure it out kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so it is, I mean, I guess a bit of a hybrid, hybrid approach. And I think what it is, is that, you know, there are some people that I work with where they just don't need branding help. I mean, mm-hmm. they do because I'm, I'm basically, you know, doing like marketing collateral. They've just got like a handful of needs and I'll say, okay, let's create a spreadsheet and basically just come up with like a backlog of things that you're mm-hmm. probably going to need to help with. Yeah. And, you know, try to get as much of an understanding of what the work is generally going to look like if we're going to do more of that monthly, monthly thing. But for for the most part, if it's if somebody just needs a new brand and they're like, let's go through your process, then you know I'll I'll quote them like a flat rate and a a project cost. I see. So in a discovery session, if you're having a couple of sessions with me to figure out like what my brand is, what that is, that's still a charge, right? It kind of depends. I mean, I would love for that to be the case, but I I haven't quite gotten there yet. You know, I think that there's definitely ways to do that where you are essentially selling like a strategy portion Mm -hmm. up front. But I usually will do a handful of calls, not a handful. I mean, I'll usually do some sort of a discovery call. I see. The first call is like just to get to know, I see. Yeah. If it's a good fit and stuff. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And then it kind of depends on what their, what their needs are. And sometimes I'll have to continue to follow up with them. And, you know, it's like, it's always better to get as much clarity up front and have the, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd much rather take the time to try and understand what it is that they need from me. And if that eats into time that I could have been charging them or whatever, like I'd much rather absorb that and have clarity on what exactly they need than jump into something and and not necessarily have that. Now, you said that if I was your client, then you would just give me an invoice that I have to pay by the end of the month. So is it like, let's say you charge me for the purpose of this conversation, $10,000. So do I have to pay you like 50% upfront before I start the project with you? Or do I have to pay the entire 10,000 by the end of this month? Usually what I'll do is, you know, if it is more of like a, let's say we're going to do a brand and it's going to be 10 grand, then probably what I would do is, you know, if it's going to be a few months out, I would say, let's do, you know, 1500 bucks down to hold your spot. Mm -hmm. Because if we're right now, I'm like, I, I just booked a project for January. Um, and, and that's basically what we did. And then for them, what I did is I basically said, we're just going to split it up and we're going to, you're going to pay for it over four months. And we just mm-hmm. agreed that they would pay for it over, you know, several months. And so the project cost was agreed to upfront. And for that particular one, it was basically a, a set project cost. And we agreed to like a monthly payment. And then at the end of that, if they're interested in, continuing to work with me and they mm-hmm. want ongoing help, then I think we'd set up another type of agreement, which is more of the time-based, hourly-based type of thing. So um, depending on the, you know, especially if it were like something like 10 grand, I mean, some companies would be like, sure, that would be fine. You know, I mean, you yeah. could probably do the 50-50 thing. But a lot of mm-hmm. times I'm working with smaller companies, startups, people who are strapped for cash. And 
it just makes sense to try to split it up into monthly payments and, uh, and, and kind of work that way. Now, do you ever worry? Like, I mean, because I mean, for somebody listening to this and they want to become like you, a brand designer of one, they're just starting out. The key thing is about payment where if somebody's like, let's say it's starting right now and they don't have to pay you any money to hold the spot. It's like, all right, I got to pay you the invoice by end of November, but then you've been working till November. There's this discomfort, like when are they going to pay them, make the payment? And if they're off like a two, like, couple of days late, do you have to go and like remind them again or or how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, I mean, there's tools that, that I have that kind of automatically remind them. I'm oh. always a little bit wary of that. Like I don't really want to pester them or make them feel like I'm, you know, I always try to get a month or two ahead uh, in terms of just, you know, when I'm billing. So whenever I'm billing people, it's nice to be able to have the grace to be like, you know, if they're late, it's not like a huge deal. And obviously I'll try to be, clear and you know there it's not like they I've never really had a situation where people are like trying not to pay me or you know it's usually mm-hmm. some sort of logistical thing that would keep them or make it late so getting a few months ahead is a big part of that so whenever I'm billing for work that's been done or that I'm going to be doing that month it's not because I need that money right then for my budget yeah. um I always try to get a month or two ahead and that way you know so anything that I'm billing for November is for like you know January Ah, so you're having a buffer of cash flow that you've accrued right. and saved up. So this way, you're never having to pester the clients. We're like, hey, my yeah. God, like, you know, where's the, right. the invoice for this month? Yeah, like December's budget is basically already good. I see. If that makes sense. So I'm not, I'm not panicked about like, oh my goodness, if they don't pay me, then what yeah. are we going to do next month? You know, or something like that. Um, yeah. You kind of have to get a few months ahead. Um, and I'm not, I guess I'm not totally a few months ahead. I think right now... You know, maybe it's maybe it's kind of rolling into December and it's sort of good at this point. Um, but that's kind of the that's kind of the the hope is that as your as your billing work is for the month or, or two in advance, so you're not getting into this kind of panic spot of like you know. But I mean, I also am very clear with people like uh, about payment terms and if it's like a net fifteen or a net thirty, um, where they have to pay within two weeks or thir- you know w- one month. What does that mean, net fifteen or net thirty? Um, so like a you know, a lot of places have like specific requirements. Uh, and if you're working with a bigger company, they'll have like certain terms where mm-hmm. um, they'll require that they, like, they will require that it's uh, paid within 30 days uh, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, at least that many days. Uh, sometimes they'll be up to like 60 or 90 days. They'll have like a net 90 terms. I haven't actually gotten into that, but I've uh, had a few friends that have agencies and have mm-hmm. had to like navigate what to do when companies have a really, really long period of time before yeah. they can pay you. And it's, you know, yeah. it's a challenge. Thankfully, I've never really gotten into that. And I'd also love to just not even... <laughs> it's like, I feel like if a company was like, we can't pay you yeah. for three months, I would be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just that's that would like stress me out too much. I totally get that. Now, for a moment, can we take a deeper dive into your tool stack? Like you mentioned some of the tools you have to autom- that automate the invoicing. Um, so what are some of the tools that help um, JT run his business? Like some of the tools you use. And I'll include them in the show notes for everyone else who's wondering and they can use them too. Yeah, I use um, Bonsai for all like, you know, project sort of... They have like contracts that work out of the box and I can do a proposal mm-hmm. um, and invoicing and I can send reminders and all that kind of stuff. So for most of the like the logistics around 
contracts, proposals, and then getting paid, I use Bonsai, just hellobonsai.com. And then um, I also use Harvest to track my time. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of an overlap. Like Bonsai can do time tracking, Harvest can do yeah. invoicing, but I just prefer the like the the desktop app that that Harvest has, um, mm-hmm. and the and the iOS app is super nice as well. So I use that to track my own time, just for my own kind of you know time hygiene, if you will. I see. Um, it's nice for me to be able to look back and see, and also to make sure that I'm like making good on you know yeah what's been set. Like I'm not reporting those to clients. I'm not saying here's the hours we spent. Yeah, I was about month. to ask that. <laughs> no, no, but I, but I will. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to like, to have that. And I always mm-hmm. want to make sure that I've, that I've got it, but it's not like a part of our contracts that affects anything. It's more of, you know, just making sure that like I'm doing my part and making sure that I'm following through on what I said I would do. Mm-hmm. And then also just kind of keeping me on track because when you're working with a handful of clients and especially if it's more time-based, then I'll try to chunk things up into like, okay, today I've got to spend three to four hours on this, two hours mm-hmm. on that, an hour on this. And um, so it's just nice to have like a, a timer running. And anytime I sit down and work on anything, I always start a timer. Oh, wow. I use Slack for communication. Um, so most actually what I do is try to set up an instance or at least have them invite me to their instance of Slack. Because oh, okay. pretty much most of the clients that I'm working with, you know, with the exception of some smaller clients have Slack. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got a few that have a different, you know, chat app. So I try to almost embed myself into the tool set that they're used to as well. Oh, I see. Um, which, I, which you know, kind of plays into that whole like I'm almost a part of their team in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so what other tools do I use? I've been trying to keep it pretty light. You know, I don't want to get too complicated. Um, you know, I've used Basecamp before for project communication mm-hmm. and things like that. But for the most part, I just you know, I'll do Slack. I've tried Loom, um, Loom yeah. for, for recording videos. I always record videos for people. Even if I, you know, sometimes I'll pull up a Zoom link and I'll record my screen. And then whatever I'm delivering things for people, I always try to make it personal in that way so that I can, oh, wow. you know, give my, just, you know, the reasoning and some of my thought process behind the design. They can see my face. Uh, and it's, you know, a personal I do the thing. same thing. But just for trying to get podcast guests on the show, so yeah. I make like a two minute like loom video, like yeah. why, for example, JT should enter an interview on Design MBA, and then it'd be like a two minute yeah. video, and I'll just walk you through the experience and everything. Yeah, for sure. And I'll so I'll even do that like if I'm doing a proposal or something like that. You know, just try to make it as personal as possible if I'm not able to meet with them in person. So Zoom, Loom, uh, Dropbox for all of my files and you know sharing things. Figma is my main design tool. Obviously, mm-hmm. all the Adobe, Adobe, uh, you know, Creative Suite. I have Notion open right now that I use for taking <laughs> notes. Sublime Text too. I use VS Code for certain projects because there's like a terminal built right in. So if mm-hmm. you have like a project or a repo that you're working on, you can actually, you know, commit changes uh, and do Git. They have like a a GUI mm-hmm. for Git, a Git GUI. Um, I have a Nucleo app, which is like a little icon thing that I use. I listen to music on Spotify. I feel like we're getting <laughs> too far. <laughs> oh my God. No, no, this is really interesting because it gives someone a perspective because one of the things, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around is when you work in an agency, there's like this whole team. There's like the account manager that engages with the client. Then the designer, the only thing they have to do is just do the branding or the design work. Right. But in your case, you have to do everything. So I was just trying to like wrap my head around how do you manage that workload like 
you got to do the design work at the same time, but you also got to like do the email and the outreach and the communication and everything. Yeah, it's true. Well, and, I, and I've got to give a ton of credit to my wife as well. She's a you know a huge support in all of this. She's got uh, she manages like all of our books, and I have an accountant who does all of our oh, wow. taxes. So yeah, my wife Kelsey will you know at the end of the month we she goes back through and we make sure that we've kept track of all of our expenses and income mm-hmm. and and how's all that. I'm pretty sure we're using QuickBooks online for that. So yeah, she's a you know, I wouldn't be able to do it without her. I'm able to, you know, she's able to kind of share the load because she's super good at that stuff. That's amazing, man. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm blessed for sure. Kelsey, if you're listening to this, you just realize how awesome of a guy you got in JT. (laughs) Smart extra points. Uh, Oh yeah, you definitely need them when the time comes. (laughs) Um, So this is like your inner stack that's helping you. Um, how do you go about finding clients? Do you dedicate a specific time? Like maybe Fridays, two hours, let me cold email clients. Is there a platform you use? What is your strategy for getting new clients? So right now I'm trying to not take on any new clients, um, which is kind of, you know, a bit ironic, but it is kind of the nature of the way that I've set things up. Like I'm basically Mm -hmm. booked because of the clients that I have right now for the next few months. Like I just don't, I can't, I couldn't take on anybody. Oh well, you're maxed out. Right. Which is, you know, which is great. And it's also I could potentially be maxed out um because most of the people that I've been able to get in and, and work with, there's either branding work that's been done, so we're like beyond any of that stuff. And mm-hmm. now it's more of like, you know, some of it is, you know, branding and, and trying to help with brand strategy and like storytelling on mm-hmm. a more regular basis through content stuff. Or I'm doing marketing collateral, like a two-pager, one-pager, Google Slides, email templates, things like that. Or it's product design. And I'm actually in like, you know, Figma and we're just working with a product team and kind of, you know, doing those kinds of things. Um, so what I plan to do, and most of the time it's word of mouth. I try to always leverage my internal network, hitting people oh, wow. up and asking for referrals, offering to give them like, you know, something like 300 bucks. If you you know, or either huge gift card, or if I know them, you know, if I know something that they would like, but try to just, you know, throw some cash their way. I mean, I'd give them 500 bucks. I don't know if somebody, um, I probably would and should give them a lot more than that. But if I were to have a client that came and said, Hey, you should talk to this person. And then they end up becoming a client, you know, I was wanting yeah. to get something that they're just sort of like, Oh, wow. Thanks, man. You didn't have to do that. But yeah. Um, so that's, that. that's one thing is word of mouth trying to hit up past clients and say, Hey, if you don't have any work, most of the time I'll hit up somebody that I've, you know, done a website for or something like that. And, you know, I have a lot of these clients that are almost these serial entrepreneurs and they're like, yeah, I've got something. And, you know, they'll, they'll come back around. Um, which is why it's so important just, you know, the customer service aspect and really delivering on, you know, just, I don't know, uh, trying to do as well as you can on their project. As far as like, you know, outbound stuff that I have done and that I plan to do in the future, um, most of that is on Dribble and LinkedIn. Those are the two places where I've been able to successfully get work. You know, I still like have Instagram and I'll post there just for fun, but mm-hmm. it's literally never turned into anything. Um, and I don't have <laughs> okay. a huge following. I have like under a th- under a thousand followers, so it's not like it's you know maybe yeah. if that number were much much higher. I, I know there's lots of people that, especially if you're selling like a, a product and you have something that's. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, to me, I think that's more of a peer. It's a peer platform. Like more like a course or something. If you had an online course, then I think it totally. makes sense. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but it's more of a peer platform and people who follow me, there are other designers. Um, Dribble, they've got more of outbound. They've got people who are using Dribble to search for designers. So you'll get, you know, some leads yeah. through that. And then uh, LinkedIn as well, uh, where you can, you know, that's where I'm able to actually interact with um, other people either that I've worked with before. And, uh, you know, I don't know, there's the organic reach on, on LinkedIn is really awesome. Oh, yeah. And then if you're maxed out and let's say one client drops out mm -hmm. for whatever reason, COVID, what you want to say, they're just like, oh, my God, we're sorry, but we've got to drop this engagement. So in that scenario, uh, just like when you have like a commercial lease to a building and if you, there's a penalty or even if an apartment building, if you have, if you break your lease, you got to pay a penalty. So if a client has to drop out for whatever reason, is there like a penalty they got to pay to get out of the contract? It depends on how it's set up. If it's like a, if it's the sort of thing where it's like, we're going to start with this bigger chunk for yeah. this, you know, clearly defined scope, then I have it that they would basically pay like a prorated amount since, you know, what they had been invoiced. So they have to pay, you know, something like 50% of whatever is remaining that still needed to be paid. If it's the sort of thing where it's like, hey, we're going to be ongoing, then, you know, for that sort of thing, I just would finish out the month and they would say, hey, we're not going to re-up next month. Um, and then I would just, I would just know it. I think for right now, I have something like seven days or 14 days. Um, it's relatively short. It's just time that they should, that they, you know, would give me a heads up that that's going to happen. And then since you're maxed out, do you have... Oh, and that's where I think your strategy is coming to play. You're booking these clients a little bit in advance. Uh, you, right. like you've got the cash flow, but then you're also holding their spots. So that's why you're not worried if a client drops out or anything like that. Yeah. And I, you know, like I said, I'm trying to you know, view it. Uh, I have a few like long-term relationships where it's just sort of like, that's kind of like you know, 80% of my time is on those few clients. And oh, then okay. I've got spots for more of these project-based things. So I am always going to have sort of a rolling... Mm -hmm. a rolling, you know, revolving door of the project-based stuff. And, you know, most of that, you know, I have a few different places where we've done some outbound stuff. Um, but even there, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at somebody who will just say that they, you know, saw our work somewhere and, and will mm -hmm. hit us up. But it's not a big outbound effort for me right now. And then how does one figure out like what their hourly rate is? Because I mean, a lot of like folks listening to this, they're going to be like, well, I want to do my own thing, but how the hell do I figure out what I charge per hour? So how do you do that for you? And maybe what advice would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It, it kind of depends on supply and demand. I mean, it's it comes down to what value people... I mean, I guess in some ways, it always is a value conversation, uh, what people mm -hmm. are willing to to pay. You know, for me, it was just more of a... I just tried to start somewhere. And I asked a bunch of peers and I said, Hey, wh what do you charge hourly? What do you think I should charge? Mm -hmm. And then some people will come back and they'll like counter offer or they'll be like, what about this amount? And, you know, I'm, it's like, I'm, I'm happy to work with people at this point. I don't have like a super, you know, hard line in the sand. And that's also nice just because, you know, over time, you know, I can also, and I haven't really had to do this yet, but it's not negotiating, but it's basically being like, Hey, um, starting in two months from now, my rate's going to go up to this. Obviously, happy to keep you guys on, but um, my rate's going to be going to that. And and that's that's been great because I've had some people who have reached out and said, "Hey, we want to work with you." And I'm like, "Great, this is my hourly rate." And they're like, "Awesome, that sounds good." And I'm like, "Okay, cool, <laughs> great, yeah, let's get started." <laughs> oh yeah, so you might even try increasing your hourly rate with the new clients to see if if, if they right. will uh, accept it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's not like you know, 
by astronomical amounts. I mean, I don't want to go to somebody and say, hey, my rate's doubled. You, you know, <laughs> just because that would be like a really, you know, try to do something like in, in like, you know, 10 to 20% increments rather than, you know, hey, we just doubled our rate. So just to get you an idea, when you were asking your peers how much they charge hourly, what were the numbers you were hearing? Like 200 an hour, 500 an hour? What are some of the numbers they're throwing around? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to friends who've freelanced in like the $50 an hour range all the way mm-hmm. up to, you know, to 250 I see. And it just kind of depends on, you know, is that just them? Is that them and one other dude? Is oh, it, I see. What kind of work is it? You know, so, you know, it kind of depends. And, and I've definitely worked with people all in those ranges as well. Less so on the higher end. But, you know, I even have one right now where I have like a, it's like a 60-40 cash equity split. So oh, wow. I ended up basically saying, hey, this is my hourly rate, but I'm going to take 60% of that in favor of getting 40% of what I would charge you to just buy units of stock. Oh, wow. That's playing the long game. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's also just like, it could just totally fall. We're not falling my yeah. face. I mean, the nice thing, but it, you know, it's sort of like, okay, let's say you, let's say your, your hourly rate is a, is a hundred bucks and you're, yeah. so then you're like, okay, now I'm making $60 an hour. And the reality is like, you basically are. I mean, there's no guarantee that the other $40 that you're spending in buying stock yeah. is going to do anything. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe, but uh, you know, most people that I talk to, it's sort of like mm, that stuff never pans out or, or you've yeah. got, you know, <laughs> you've got to get a rare. So was that offered to you or did you propose that kind of arrangement? No, it was offered just because they were, you know, young and sort of in that startup phase where it's sort of like, you know, there's not many, very many people involved and I see. they, you know, need my help. And so, you know, it's like, that's the main way that they can. Uh, so that was the only way the deal could move forward. There was no right. way you could just say, no, I will only work hundred percent cash. Okay. Yeah. I see. And I, you know, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't do it. That's mm-hmm. not something I'm looking for. It's just, you know, somebody that I knew, somebody that I trusted and somebody who I'm like, they have a pretty good track record. So I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty excited about it. It's not like I'm just, I don't, it doesn't feel like I'm just throwing money away. So you are a brand designer one now, and there's a lot of things you're still figuring out, but you've already made the jump and there's still other people who haven't made the jump. So having gone through this journey, what advice would you give them if they were looking to become a brand designer one, just like you? I think that uh, it really comes down to evaluating whether or not you have the skills, some of the self-discipline that I think it takes to to be able to be organized with your time and work with clients and be able to handle both some of the sales process and some of the unknowns of getting new clients and then also delivering on the work. And, you know, for me, it's like I have a huge support system in place from just, you know, being married and my wife having other skills that I'm able to lean on. She's a self-discipline. Yeah. So I, I think it, it really does come down to just, you know, some of those time management skills. And then, uh, and, you know, I, I think the, the first thing to do is, is obviously just to kind of venture out and try to find, you know, a freelance thing, try to find some small project yeah. that kind of allows you to just, it's sort of the training wheels and, and being able to um, try it out without really needing to, you know, totally take the plunge. Wow. And when you say the self-discipline, you have some examples from your personal life that showed you that, okay, I think I have the mindset and the right self-discipline that I can venture on this. You mentioned briefly about like the timing of things, delivering on time. What are other examples of that self-discipline that is required? 
Um, yeah, I think it's for me, one example is just the ability to kind of make certain compromises. Um, so I'll give you a few examples. I wake up at five o'clock every morning. Wow. Um, and that's just sort of, that's just a, a regimen that I've gotten into. It mm-hmm. actually started when I went through Thinkful like seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time in the day when I could wake up and have the time to put in a solid like two hours before I'd have to go to my job. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I was, you know, I got into that habit and I was like, wow, this is great. I just like added, yeah. you know, an extra 10 to 15 hours of my week when I got some time to myself to, mm-hmm. to do some of those things. And then I was working for Focus Lab. They're on the East Coast and I'm in Idaho. So there I was able to basically do that and get started working. I would start work here around 5.30 in the morning. That's 8.30 their time. So I would basically work from like 5.30 in the morning to 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon. And then I would have those other hours in the, in the afternoon that I could play with my boys and wow. um, you know, just have some more free time to be with the family or work on freelance projects yeah. um, in the afternoon when it's like not a conflict of interest. It's not like I was you know, during the day, just like working on freelance projects, I would try to, you know, find other times where it's like, it's basically still during the work hours, uh, that would be normal work hours that I could devote, you know, solid few hours to that. So being creative with just your time management. And then also, you know, as a designer, there's times where the purist in me and the designer and more of the artist just gets upset because I really can't do the absolute best job that I want Mm -hmm. to. Like when you're at focus lab or when you're an in-house designer, you can really focus. I mean, it's just like, this is your task. This is the project you're working on. You've got this little mm-hmm. sliver of it. And so you can put all of your focus into that. Yes. That's really rewarding. But then when you're working for yourself, you have to be able to make those compromises and be like, look, at the end of the day, they hired me to do this thing. They're happy with where it is. I mean, yes. I'll be happy with it. But at the end <laughs> of the day, I need to be willing to make those compromises and make sure that my client is happy. I've delivered on something that I know that I need to do. And I have enough energy to do that for everybody. Uh, and, and that's, I think that's what, what comes down to is that you can work yourself into a situation where you're like, you know, just working yourself to the bone and then you have nothing left to give. Um, yeah. And that, that balance is something that I think I've just had to learn over time. And it, it can be uncomfortable. You know, you'll have certain clients who are like, hey, can we talk? Hey, can we talk? And you just kind of have to be like... I'd love to schedule a time. Let's schedule a time. And, and then also uh, be like, look, we're, we're kind of ramping up a little bit. And I just want to let you know, like, it may get to the point this week when I kind of just have to chill out and not do anything for you for, for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, then that, you know, that can be uncomfortable. Nobody ever cares. They're not like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. They're like, yeah, no, good, good deal. Let's, uh, let's, let's do that. And then, you know, I get it. So having those difficult conversations with with uh, clients or, or just setting those boundaries, I guess that's probably a good way of describing it. It's just having a clear sense of those boundaries that you need in order to recharge, in order to handle and and uh, give the service to the clients that you, that you need to. Because um, you really have to, you know, I'm at I'm at home all day pretty much, yeah. And so I've got to I've got to have those those boundaries so that I can turn work off, go to the gym, yeah. spend time with my family and uh, recharge. Now, when you started this, or maybe even now, is there any ego involved if for whatsoever reason you have to like go and get a full-time job at a company or you decide to? Are you still open to that? Or is it like, no, like now that I'm doing my own thing, no matter what, I have to proceed on this path? No, I definitely don't feel any... If I needed to go get a job, you know, at the end of the day, to me, this is just... It's a means to an end. Okay, and that's ultimately for me to be able to 
you know, spend more high quality time with uh, my family and my kids. And, um, you know, so yeah, I'm a Christian as well. It's, it's ultimately all about glorifying God. And like, at the end of the day, this is a, a gift that I feel like I've been given. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's just my job to be a good steward of it. It's like all these opportunities, all yeah. the work that's in front of me is basically something that, that I've been given. And it's just my job to, to try to, you know, do as best I can for the, the clients that I have. Um, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, if like it all crashes and burns, then like, you know, <laughs> to God be the glory and like, I'll go get another job. I'll go do whatever, you know, it's just, it's not, I mean, it's definitely at times feels like it's, it's about me and there's totally ego wrapped up in the work. And I think there's an element that can be healthy. I mean, you want to be able to enjoy it and be proud of it and, and feel like you did a good job and, and you're mm-hmm. using your talents in a way. And it's, it's good. I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing, but, um, no, I would, you know, if I needed to, or if I needed to go get another job, I'd be happy to do that. Oh my God. I love that, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, you going well. I love it. Um, how can people contact you or follow you on social media? Um, so I think that probably the best way right now is just on Instagram or if you're a designer on dribble, um, uh, I mean, LinkedIn too. Uh, there's not a, a ton of people that are like my, I mean, there's definitely a lot of peers on, on LinkedIn, but you know, that's less, but you could, you know, LinkedIn is, is probably another good spot. Um, obviously check out my site. Uh, I need to update that more and more. And the plan is to continue to do that over the next few months. Uh, just jtgraphy.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, JT, for coming on the show, man, and sharing your wisdom. It's been a freaking blast. Thanks, man. It's been really fun to be on. If you made it this far, you are what I call a Design MBA super fan. And I've got a gift for you, my super fan. Head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.